week. Well, um, I don't know about you, but I love reminiscing about my childhood. And when I was growing up, my dad used to work for the Teamsters Union. And when I say that, I don't mean that he was part of a union. I mean that he was a union official. He was the vice president of Local 588 retail delivery drivers. And um, their early headquarters was actually located in Oakland, right across from the Oakland Coliseum. And so a typical evening for my family would be my mom, my sister, and I driving to Oakland to my dad's office, and we'd, we'd have dinner, we'd pick him up, and then we'd go to an A's game. Well, before the game, we would always go to eat at one of the Teamster hangouts, and it was this place called Francesco's in Oakland. Now, some of you know it. I know some of you know it. I hear you. Well, this wasn't just a Teamster hangout, you guys. This was the Teamster hangout. Um, you would pull into the parking lot, and it would be full of cigarette smoke and Cadillacs. You knew you were in the right spot. Well, one night we went, and the Teamsters were celebrating something, and so we walked into the restaurant, and we were escorted to the back room. The Teamsters always had a back room in whatever location they were meeting in, and um, everyone was there, and it was just filled with cigar smoke and dudes drinking scotch and being really loud and there were lots and lots and lots of Italian names being thrown, thrown around. So my sister and I just went and we kind of sat at our own little table and started munching on some bread and look, started looking at the menu. And then the mood in the room completely shifted and this figure appeared in the doorway and he was dressed head to toe in black, black shirt, black slacks, black overcoat over his shoulders, beautiful black top hat on with this beautiful silver hair peeking out from under it. And he stood in the doorway and the room fell to a hush. And as the room was almost becoming silent, he started to walk into the room and all eyes were on him. Like, where is he going to sit? Everybody was watching him. And I thought to myself, who in the world is this guy? Like, who is this guy? It was like the Queen of England had just walked into the room. Everyone was watching him. He commanded so much attention with his presence. And he looked around the room, walked right up to our table, to the empty seat across from me, and he said, I'm going to sit here. And as soon as he pointed to the chair, two guys came out and flanked him on his right and on his left. One of them pulled the chair out for him, and then the other one kind of took the coat off his shoulders, and then he started kind of weighing the coat, like weighing it. And he said these words to this gentleman. He said, hey, Benny, I can see that you aren't packing today. That's <laughs> what he said. And um, I was just a kid, but I was a Teamster kid and I knew exactly what that meant. And so my eyes got as big as saucers, and he saw that I was a little freaked out, right? I was a little afraid, and he looked at me, and he gave me one of these. <laughs> gave me that. And for the rest of the evening, I was so enthralled with him. I could not take my eyes off of him. He just oozed this authority and this power without ever saying a word. Like, he never got up from his chair the entire night. If you wanted to talk to him, you had to come sit next to him and talk to him. He never had to ask for his meal or ask for a drink. People were constantly bringing him what he needed, there was so much power in his presence. And so that night when we got home, I asked my dad, I said, Dad, who was sitting across from me? And he goes, oh, that? His name is Benny the Hinge. Benny the Hinge. Now, 
I know why they call him Benny the Hinge, but I am not at liberty to tell you why they called him Benny the Hinge. And that was the first time in my life that I came face-to-face and had a face-to-face encounter with a Teamster boss. And I would have many more encounters after that. Uh, But it was also the first time that I realized that entrances matter. Entrances matter. How you enter anything, it matters because it sets the tone from that point on. How you enter kind of dictates how things are going to go after that. It kind of sets the tone for anything that happens after that, okay? Um, Here, you might have heard this before. Have you ever heard of Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs? You guys have heard of that before? It's this fairly obvious pyramid of needs that each human being has. Um, And it starts with physical needs, you know, things we need to survive like food, water, air. Um, And then it goes up a level. We need things like um, security, right? We have to have shelter, we have to make money. And then right after that, what people need more than anything else is belonging, love, and, and esteem. We have these esteem needs, okay? Well, how you enter determines the first impression that people have of you. And it colors everything you do after that. How you enter anything, it determines if people are going to take you seriously or not, right? Whether people are going to like you or not. Whether they're going to accept you or not. And all of this plays into these deep Maslowian needs that we have to be loved and accepted and heard and understood and belong. It's all kind of tied together. And I don't really think I'm reaching with this one. I'm going to prove it to you. But I think we all kind of get this. You see, because if you came into church late this morning, right as the person was getting up to speak, and you arrive just as the message is getting started, and you walk in and you see it, and you're like, oh no, I'm late. I can pretty much guarantee you there is no way that you're going to walk right up to the front and you're going to sit right here in the front. You know why? Entrances matter. And you don't want people to know that you got here late. It's going to ruin the morning for you. You know what you're going to do? You're going to turn around in the back. You're going to walk up all those crazy stairs and you're going to sit right up in the top. Now, I'm not saying you guys up there came in late. Only you know, right? But there's no way you're going to do the walk of shame down to the front. There's just no way you're going to do it. You know why? Because entrances matter. You don't want to look bad. You don't want to look embarrassed for arriving late. You don't want people staring at you as you get your seat. You don't want people thinking you don't have all your stuff together on a Sunday. Because no one wants to set a tone for themselves that includes embarrassment or rejection or not being heard or not being taken seriously. Why? because it kind of eats away at those basic Maslowian needs we have to be loved and accepted and esteemed, okay? But here's where the problem comes in for us, I think. Because of these deep desires that we have to be taken seriously, to be heard and be understood, all of the Maslow things that we need, because these are such deep, primal, basic needs that we have, I think that we can sabotage our way into just about anything. I think what ends up happening is because we have these deep needs, our human nature actually begins to take over sometimes and it causes us to want to control the outcome of anything that we happen to be entering. And we use whatever power we have to make a good impression. 
Or in the case of entering the auditorium late, maybe you don't, maybe you don't come in powerfully, but you don't want to expose your lack of power, do you? That you couldn't get up on time. You don't want to expose that. And so how you are perceived when you enter depends on how you use your power. And sometimes I think we misuse that power and we sabotage our entrances. And you guys, I'll tell you that the stakes are really high when we do this. They're really high because entrances set the tone for any number of things that are really important in our lives, like entire relationships, our marriages, our relationships with our kids, um, how we enter anything how you enter a conversation. It sets the tone for how that conversation will go. It sets the tone for the work that you do. And entrances even set the tone for your relationship with God. Let me see if you can relate to any of these. Um, have you ever been talking in a new group of people and they're talking about something that you don't understand? And so you start making stuff up like, oh, I, I know a little bit about that, so I'm just gonna throw in this information, and I'll throw in that information, and pretty soon you are the only one who is talking, right? You know what they call that person? A know-it-all. But your power that you are using is now sabotaging that conversation. That is a bad entrance, okay? Or as a parent, have you been so angry at your kids for not taking you seriously? Like, I mean it when I say, pick your clothes up off the floor and put them in the hamper, not just on the floor, next to the hamper. And the words that fly out of your mouth are how many times have I told you or when are you going to learn? That is a bad entrance into a conversation with your kids. Or have you maybe felt so insecure in a meeting on a Monday morning when your boss says, hey, did you get this thing done? And you like do that little white lie thing. Well, maybe you didn't quite get it done, but you're going to lie about it because you would rather not face the embarrassment of telling your boss you didn't do something. That is a bad entrance into a conversation on a Monday morning. And here's the last one. Have you ever felt so inadequate before God that you thought, you know what? He isn't going to accept me the way that I am, so I am not even going to enter a conversation with him at all. And you see, you guys, it's not that we don't care about these relationships or these conversations. It's that sometimes we care way too much. And because of that, very often we blow our entrances and we kill our best chances at creating healthy environments and relationships for ourselves with each other and with God because of our own bad habits that we have, our own mistakes and our insecurities with using the power that we've got. Entrances matter. They really matter. Well, today is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday, like we said, marks the beginning of Holy Week, and there is a very famous entrance in the Bible that I want us to look at today. It's something called the Triumphal Entry, and I want to look at it because I think Jesus himself has something to teach us about how to enter and how to enter well for the sake of our relationships and all of the things that are important to us. And so we're gonna look at that today. This event is actually recorded in all four of the Gospels, but the uh, account that I wanna look at this morning takes place in John chapter 12, and this is what it says. It says, the next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. 
Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed that sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about what was going on surrounding this event. Um, every year, the Jewish people had these festivals, and the biggest one was a festival called Passover. And it was a time when God's people would remember that he rescued them from the hands of Pharaoh, rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, okay? Well, Derek talked about this last week. Um, you know the story. Charlton Heston, I mean Moses, right? Don't you just, they're like the same person, right? Charlton Heston, Moses, tells Pharaoh, he says, hey, let my people go. But Pharaoh wouldn't do it, and so God sent all of these plagues. Like, he sent um, water turned to blood and gnats and flies, frogs, boils, all kinds of fun things. It was really a terrible couple of months um, to be an Egyptian. And when the Pharaoh still wouldn't comply, God sent this one final plague. He sent the angel of death to kill the firstborn in every household. Only the angel of death would pass over your household if you put blood on your doorpost. And so the angel would pass over when it saw that, and that's why the event is called Passover. Well, that is exactly why Jesus is in Jerusalem at this time, to celebrate the Passover. Now, the passage says that there was a great crowd, a great crowd. If you ever see this, this event depicted in art, there's always like three people there, right? There is like three people, Jesus is coming in, there's like three or four people there. But the passage says there was a great crowd. Now let me tell you, doesn't it make sense that if this is the high holy holiday, this is their holiday, that it would be more than just a great crowd? Well, it, it was. This was actually an enormous crowd that had gathered. There were at least, scholars think, that there were at least two to 300,000 people who descended upon Jerusalem for this festival. To give you an idea of how many people that is, that would be like the entire population of Livermore, Pleasanton, and Dublin descending upon Jerusalem all at one time. Three entire cities descending upon Jerusalem. And you know what? That's just counting the men. So if you're counting women and children, half a million to a million people now in, in Jerusalem. It was enormous. And they are all there to remember this time when God delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh. Okay, hold on to that for just a second. They are remembering, okay? They're remembering. But they are also currently being reminded that they are still living in oppression, they are still suffering. So while they're remembering this time of suffering, they're aware that they are still suffering, and they've been suffering at the hand of an entire line of Roman imperial rulers, these guys called the Caesars, okay? So let me just show you something, and you're going to find out in just a minute why it's so important that we're talking about the Caesars this morning, okay? Well, uh, decades before Jesus was born, the Roman ruler was Julius Caesar. We all remember him from our Roman history classes, right? Well, after Julius Caesar ruled, then it was his adopted son, Octavian, and Octavian changed his name to Caesar Augustus. Remember Caesar Augustus? Caesar Augustus was the guy who was in power when Jesus was born, all right? Well, now... Caesar Augustus is gone, and now we have this guy named Caesar Tiberius, and he is the guy who is in power as this scene 
is happening. Now, you guys, Tiberius had a problem because Rome was huge. The Roman imperial boundary was huge, and he needed some help ruling and governing. And so he brought in these governors to help him rule and communicate with the people. And this is where the Herod brothers come in. You might have heard that, that word, that name before, Herod brothers. This is where three brothers come in. We've got Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. Now, Archelaus, he was no good, and he gets kicked out immediately. And in his place, Caesar Tiberius installs a guy named Pontius Pilate. Okay, Pontius Pilate. So there we go. Now, the Herodian plan, these three Herodian brothers, who Pontius Pilate is now kind of one of them, their plan was to demand such high taxes that everyone lived on the brink of poverty. Well, I would, I would say that they actually lived in extreme poverty. Because if you couldn't pay your taxes, you know what they do? They would just come and take whatever stuff you had left, they would take your family, and they would sell everything off to their friends in Jerusalem. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that sounds pretty typical, and, and it is people in power, exploiting people who are not in power. It is a tale as old as time. Until you find out how rich the Herods were. Some historians say that the Herods were the richest family in human history ever. Ever. If that tells you how much they were taking from people, they were the richest family in human history ever. And so these people were living in extreme poverty. Well, Pontius Pilate is the, the Herod in the region where Jesus is, and he is the guy responsible for collecting payment and for keeping peace, and he is lining his pockets with the blood, sweat, and tears of the Jewish people. Same thing as back in Egypt. And because the Jewish people remember that God sent them a savior and a rescuer back then, they were hoping that God was going to do the same thing now. Now. And guess what, you guys? This guy named Jesus that they had been hearing about, um, the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead, the guy who fed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves and fishes, the guy who turned water to wine and he went around healing sick people, the guy who himself said his power would eclipse that of Herod and Pilate and Caesar, that guy, that Jesus, he was outside the city gates and when the people hear that he is near, these people literally start freaking out. When they hear that Jesus is outside the city gates, they start going nuts. They are absolutely losing their minds. Matthew's account says this. It says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? They were stirred up that day. You know, this word in the Greek, stirred up or stirred, it, it refers to an earthquake. And so what this text is telling you is that the city was quaking. It was shaking because the people were ready for something massive, massive, because they're thinking, you know what, this is it. This is the guy. This is the time. This is the guy who's going to overthrow the Roman rulers. This is it. God did it for us before. God's going to do it for us again. That guy Jesus is waiting outside the city gates. And so they all get together and they start chanting together, Hosanna, Hosanna. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. You see, they get it at this point. And they start to see this is the Messiah. This is the guy. The savior that we have been waiting for is coming. And they start crying, Hosanna, save us now. And then they start doing something which brings this scene to a total tipping point. It's a tipping point. They start waving these palm branches. You see, ever since the Jewish people were in exile, um, they had always suffered under someone, right? They had suffered under um, Alexander the Great, the Greeks, the Romans, you name it. Somebody was always in power over them. Well, in all that time, there had only been one successful Jewish revolution, and it was led by a man named Judah Maccabee. And it's too much to tell you about this morning, but here's what you need to know. After his successful revolution, when he came marching back into Jerusalem, the people started waving palm branches. Palm branches. And so these palm branches became the symbol of Jewish, Jewish rebellion. And they remained a symbol of Jew, Jewish rebellion from then on. And so, you guys, I hope you catch what is happening here. This is huge. And it has taken us a long time to get to this point in the story. But now I want you to fully embrace what is going on in this scene. A mega crowd, almost a million people of Jewish pilgrims, gathering in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And they are all stirred up, right? The whole city is quaking. And the people are waving the symbols of the only successful Jewish rebellion in Jewish history. And they are chanting, save us, save us. And here is Jesus waiting outside the city gates. And it is a pivotal moment for him. It's a pivotal moment. In the midst of this great scene, Jesus is thinking to himself, how am I going to enter? Entrances matter. How am I going to enter? Well, um, if I could just put the pause button there for just a second and just say, if I'm honest about this, if, like if I'm Jesus, I am, I'm going to... I'm just gonna show up in that thing, right? I'm gonna prove by my entrance that I am someone powerful, like I'm the king of the universe. And so if I were Jesus in this moment, I would pull a power move, a power move. Um, I was doing some research on this topic this week, like how would I enter the room with confidence? So I started Googling that, if there's a way to do it. And I found this article that reads, how to enter a room like a boss. How to enter a room like a boss. And in the article, it says, um, you need to just walk in like you know what you're doing, even if you don't. Most importantly, you need to project an air of authority, conviction, and certainty. In other words, you have to enter like a boss, okay? And then this author goes on to list nine ways that you can enter a room like a boss. And one of the nine suggestions he gives is to strike a power pose before entering the room. Strike a power pose, okay? And there's a reason. Listen to this. A Harvard psychologist named Amy, Amy Cuddy found that standing tall directly influences our biochemistry, so it affects your body, right? In all animal species, postures that are expansive, open, and take up space are associated with high power and dominance, all right? Well, in a research study that she did, um, when participants were asked to strike a power pose, like this, the results were amazing. 
After just two minutes in a high power pose, testosterone rose and cortisol, which is a stress hormone, it, it lowered. So in other words, by simply standing in a more dominant way, people physically and mentally felt like the dominant person. So I'm gonna stand here for two minutes and I'm gonna see if it works. <laughs> so in other words, you guys, if you wanna feel like a dominant person and be perceived as the dominant person, you have to pose like a dominant person. And so if I were Jesus on this day, this is the move that I would strike. <laughs> that is it, that would be my power pose. That's my power pose. Well, lo and behold, there was someone on the opposite side of the city who was getting ready to strike a power pose. Remember Pilate? Remember that guy? Well, listen, word gets back to Pilate that people are freaking out on the eastern side of the city, and, and he starts to panic because there could be an uprising. And it's, it's his job to make sure that that doesn't happen. So he decides that he's going to make his own entrance into Jerusalem. So can you just picture this? The city's about to explode, you guys. And Jesus is getting ready to enter from the east. And here comes Pilate making his own entrance from the west. Two entrances happening at the exact same time. And this is what his entrance would have looked like. He would have come down from his palace up in Caesarea Philippi, and he would have marched his entire army down into the city in a massive show of force. And it would have looked a little like this. First, it would be the Roman eagle, the Roman eagle would come in on a, like on this scepter type thing. And then the flags of all the Caesars and their divine titles, and the flags list all these battles that they've won. And then would come the centurions and the legionnaires and the cavalrymen, like the foot soldiers would start, and then the dudes on the horses would come in, and then all the armored chariots. And then Pilate himself entered. And you guys, on this side of the city where people are crying out Hosanna for Jesus, on the opposite side of the city, they're crying out, hail to Pilate, hail to Caesar. Now, if I had to choose a power move, I would choose that one, right? I would choose it. That is a power pose. Like, Pilate struck that pose before he entered the city, and then he carried it all the way through. Now, I tried really hard to find a picture of what this might look like. Couldn't find one, but I imagine it looks something like this. Yeah, like power pose with your army behind you. That is a power pose. And it was meant to send a very definite message. And the message was this. If you mess with Rome, you're messing with raw power. You resist, you're gonna feel that power. So all of you simple-minded Jewish people with your festivals and your singing and your dancing and your wine, do not get any ideas. And you guys, now we finally get to it. Now we get to Jesus. I've been saying all along that entrances matter, and there was no important entrance than the one he was about to make into Jerusalem that day. And the thing about his entry, crosswinds, is that the people knew who he was. They knew he was Jesus, that he was the Messiah. Those people who were going crazy and who were losing their minds over him, they were right in believing he came to save them. And they were right that he was going to rescue them and be their savior. They were right that he was going to overthrow every other power in heaven and on earth. And they were absolutely right to start crying out, Hosanna. 
And so again, as he's outside the city gates and he's hearing the hundreds of thousands of people chanting, waiting for him, he thinks, how should I enter? How do I show them what I am about to do? And then it comes to him. He knows. He thinks, I'm going to remind them of what they already know. I'm going to remind them of what they already know. Because in the book of Zechariah, there were all kinds of prophecies that would talk about how the Messiah would arrive and what that would look like and how he would come. And they were good Jewish citizens, so they knew these prophecies. And in Zechariah 9, it explains in detail how the Messiah would come. Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, gentle and riding on a donkey. Gentle and riding on a donkey. And you see, this move right here, this was Jesus' power move. By getting on that donkey, he was reminding them of what they already knew, that the Messiah would come that he would come righteous and victorious, but he would come gently and with humility. And you see, that donkey that day was a sign, and it was a reminder to them that he would come as an instrument of peace and restoration, but not as an instrument of war and violence. And I'll say it again, while the Jewish people were right to cry out, Hosanna, they were terribly wrong to wave those palm branches that day. And as Jesus rides into the city, hearing them cry out, Hosanna, and he sees those palm branches, it absolutely devastates him. It devastates him, and it crushes his heart. It crushes his heart that they don't get it and they don't understand. I don't know if you have, have really picked up on this part of the story. I think this has a whole new meaning for me after looking at it this last week. But look at what happens after he sees them waving the palm branches in Luke 19. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He was so heartbroken that they could not see that he was trying to bring them peace in a different way, and he was trying to show them that with his entrance. Why? Because entrances matter. Entrances matter. Everything that Jesus did that way spoke of power but it was a completely different power than what they wanted. He was claiming power, and he was entering as king, but what they couldn't see is that his crown would be a crown of thorns, and that his throne would be a Roman cross, and that his coronation would be his sacrifice as the Lamb of God as he took away the sins of the world, and that the overthrow of sin and death permanently would be his revolution. And that's what they could not see. But you guys, instead of entering the city that day with a posture that was trying to prove himself, right? Or trying to protect his ego, like, don't you guys even know who I am? Or trying to prove to them what he was about to do so that they understood, like, guys, can't you see what I'm about to do? Instead of entering with pride and power and might and right, all of the things that were at his fingertips, the God of the universe 
entered the city that day riding on a donkey. No army, no bravado, just gentleness, vulnerability, and tears. And because of his entrance that day, Jesus would change the course of history forever by going to the cross and dying for our sins, raising from the dead to conquer sin and death for us so that we could have new life and restoration in him. Let me tell you something. What an entrance. What an entrance on the part of Jesus. Crosswinds, this is a picture of a true power pose. It is the greatest power move of all time, and it's riveting. It is so riveting because it tells us that love is more powerful than hate and that peace is more powerful than violence and that vulnerability is the most powerful force on the planet. And I'll tell you, when we read the scriptures and we look at a story like this, it is never just about religion or Christianity or making political statements or anything like that. At its very core, everything we learn in the Bible teaches us something first and foremost about what it means to be human, especially this entry. And here's what I mean by that. You see, we get this same choice every single day to choose how we're gonna enter, right? Every day you can take this story and apply it. Every day you can let this story read you and you can make a choice about how you enter anything. Because the truth is, you can either enter by powering up like Pilate, or you can take the way of Jesus, but the truth is, you cannot do both. And so as we sit here this morning, I just want you to think about your relationships and your conversations. You are powering up somewhere in your life, in some relationship, in some conversation you've been having, you have been using your power to control the outcome you want. And right now, you get to choose how you're gonna move forward in your marriage. You're gonna power up to get your way or you're gonna humbly serve your spouse and love them and be vulnerable with them. Um, in, your, in your work life, are you gonna power up with your boss or your employees or your vendors? Or will you work humbly and honestly and lovingly in your daily conversations, are you going to fight to be heard? Or is every conversation a contest that you need to win? Will you choose to be vulnerable in how you talk to people and serve other people in your conversations? And you guys, honestly, in your relationship with God, will you enter in trying to prove yourself, try to prove that you're worthy? Or will you enter in vulnerably, knowing that God accepts you just the way that you are, because that's when he gets to work with you? And that's when you can hear him. And so I just want to encourage you. As you enter Holy Week, my prayer is that you will consider choosing the way of Jesus this week. That you will learn how to power down and not power up. Will you be willing to get on that donkey yourself? Think about it. Will you be willing to get on that donkey yourself and be vulnerable? for the sake of your relationships and all of the things that are important to you. Let's stand and pray. God, I thank you so much for um, just this visual, this vision of you writing in humbly with tears in your eyes, crying because we just didn't get it. And sometimes we still don't get it. 
God. Sometimes um, we just feel like we've got to power up because we're scared or we don't want to lose control. But, but you have a message for us, any visual, this morning. Please help us to be brave in our relationships and our conversations and to follow you into this week. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, you guys. We'll see you good Friday and Easter.